0: This is Death, Sex, and Money. Always be closing. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot.
1: Guilt is just one more thing trying to asphyxiate us during sex. And
0: need to talk about more.
1: We are horrible, desperate, ghoulish creatures who will stop at nothing
0: to get our house back. I'm Anna Sale. Last Sunday, I interviewed Alec Baldwin on stage in Brooklyn in front of a live, sold-out audience. It was less than 18 hours after he'd been live on SNL, where this week he played Bill O'Reilly and President Donald Trump. I talked to Alec Baldwin about his life, growing up one of six kids on Long Island, finding quick success in television and movies, and living in the public spotlight for nearly 40 years now. He writes about all this in his new memoir, Nevertheless, and he doesn't skip over his uglier moments. He has sparred with the tabloid press throughout his career, particularly during his long and nasty custody battle in the mid-90s. Alec joined me on stage at the Brooklyn Academy of Music to talk about his high highs and his low lows, and about why he decided to put even more of himself out there, this time in a memoir. Okay. What
1: I wanted to do was run out, me first, <laughs> and introduce you.
0: I'm in control here, you, Okay. And then I would run out,
1: <laughs> and you'd introduce me.
0: So I want to start uh, with how you start your memoir, Money. You say early on that the reason you wrote this book was because you got paid for it. And you say the mercenary force is strong in this one. So I want to ask you about money. Uh, Is the making of money for you, is the thrill in getting the big paycheck and spending it at this point, or is it watching it accumulate to feel safe?
1: You know, I completely forgot that this is an episode of Death, Sex, and Money. (laughs) We're taping this for your show. Um, It's interesting you say that. I never really thought about that, because I don't... uh, I I literally have a... a, This is going to sound silly... And maybe some people are too young here to get this analogy, but um, like in Bugs Bunny cartoons, Bugs Bunny sometimes would be sleepwalking on a construction site. And he'd be walking along like these girders and he was about to walk off the edge and another girder would come into place and he'd walk on that and uh, always be rescued at the last moment. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of my financial planning strategy.
0: Uh
1: (laughs) Things get really bad. And then a big girder of money comes in. And I walk on that for a while. There's these planks of money keep coming in to float me to where I'm going to go before I die. But um, I never really think about that. I, have, I, really, I really believe a lot in providence, financially. Yeah. Well, <laughs> That's not what you want to hear, I don't know.
0: I think I'm much is, of a
1: financial planner.
0: I think I actually appreciate how honest you are about money being part of what motivates you because you grew up not with a lot of it. So it makes sense that creating a sense of security not only for yourself but your, for your family is something that you've thought about as you've made career choices.
1: Well, I think that people who like, go into business and uh, succeeding uh, the, and being measured at least in one part on money and income um, people in investment banking obviously, things that are all very near and dear to us New Yorkers um, uh, the, uh, you know, the business I'm in you, you you tend not to think about that, and then all of a sudden one day you are thinking about that because there's tremendous opportunities there for people who succeed in film and television. But uh, I think that when I got out of my house when I was a kid and I went to school, I thought, I just want to succeed at whatever I do. Like, if I went into acting for, like, a year or two and I was still waiting tables, I probably wouldn't have done it. I wasn't going to walk around for, like, a decade, you know, with a copy of uh, Balm and Gilead wedged in my pocket and like you know hanging out dressed in all black clothes at uh, <laughs> McSorley's all night long you know You weren't going to suffer for <clears throat> I, wasn't the doing, art. I, I wasn't doing that
0: Yeah well you actually the, you 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 recall a conversation that you had with a professor at George Washington when you're at that stage of life you've gone one year to college at George Washington thinking that law and policy is part of your future you trans you're thinking about transferring to NYU and he says to you you write it's interesting that you're not talking about any dreams you have. You're just talking about how you're going to make it. That that was what was driving yeah,
1: you. Well, he, he was uh, he was a very uh, intense guy, very clever guy, and you know, smart guy. I think very caring of his students. You know, older. You know, I was in my early twenties. He was probably close to sixty. Probably like right around my age now. And um, he, um, uh, for my own benefit, to kind of threw a cold glass of water on me. You know, to uh, to think about how I was going into this I was giving up going to law school and this kind of traditional track I was on to go into this more non traditional track and rather late in the game. And he was like, well where's the artistic spirit? You know, where's the um, the passion for it from an artistic standpoint? And uh, I don't think I had that really. You don't No, no. I think I, I think I went to I went to NYU uh, for people, again, these are references people here might be too young to get, but I'll never forget, the guy that was auditioning me then was a guy uh, named Fred Gorlick. And I came in, and, and of course, I f- later find out I've done, unfortunately for poor Fred, I've probably done the 900th rendition of Long Day's Journey and tonight. I've done Edmund mm-hmm. from Long Day's Journey. I get in, and I'll never forget Fred, who was this very colorful guy. He looks at me and goes, You remind me of a young Aldo Ray. He said, because my voice was kind of raspy. you remind me of a very young Aljo Ray, he said. And I thought, my God, is that a compliment? I thought, hey, <laughs> is,
0: that,
1: is that supposed to uh, uh, close that the mean? deal here? Yeah. So I go to the school, and uh, I had tremendous doubts about that. I really, I didn't really think it was what I wanted to do. I was going to try. I would never be young enough again to try that, so I did it. And then as soon as I got out of that first year, I had to go another year or one semester because all my credits didn't transfer, but I got work right away. And then I just kept working. And the more I would work in the business, the more I would, um, for simplicity's sake, I'll say, get into that Uta Hagen thing about respect for acting. Because in the beginning, it wasn't that I had uh, cynicism about it or a lack of respect for it. I just didn't take it seriously enough. And then after I did this soap opera for like two years and absorbed all the things from those people about their experiences outside of the television show because all of them were like running off to go to the McCarter or to do King John and everything. And I'm doing a soap opera where you know, every day we go to work, the script, unavoidably so, was just treacle every day. You know what I mean? Every day you're like, Greta, I love you, Greta. <laughs> I love you so much, Greta. I wish there was enough time in the day to tell you, Greta, how much I love you. And like the next day, the same thing. Once, one more time, Greta, <laughs> let me put a finer point on this: how much I love you. And it was like you just want to go blow your brains out. And um, and all the cast, many of them veteran theater actors, they take their break, and I say, "What are you going to do?" And they go, well, "I'm going to go do King John the McCarter. Or I'm going to go do uh, Light Up the Sky at the Paper Mill Playhouse, and they're all the Westport Playhouse, and they're all." really intense theater actors and by the time I came out of that process with them, I had completely changed, I think, really.
0: You write with a lot of fondness about David O'Brien, who was your co-star on The Doctors, and I love these scenes you, you recall of running around the mid-50s of Manhattan as a young man, having moved from Long Island to then Washington and then you're running around town with this band of gay men, a very handsome young man yourself, and
1: Back and then, you, yeah, back then. and uh, it was So good back
0: then. But it made me... It made, <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's amazing.
0: It made me kind of wonder, like, you had a lot of different role models for what masculinity looked like. Yeah. On Long Island, in Washington. then you, well, David O'Brien becomes this very important role model for you as what, what a man who's a performer is like. What did you learn about masculinity from those guys when you're drinking in bars in Manhattan <laughs> at that
1: stage of your career? That's so great. David played my father on the show. And I knew he what, what his nature was the first day, because the first day I come on, they were very merciless there. They wanted you to know your lines, and they wanted to, they wanted to do what they call live tape, which is don't stop, because we don't want to do the editing, because the editing costs money. We want you to play the scene straight through. Don't don't cut. Try to get through it. Try to remember your lines. Like
0: SNL. Like, you know,
1: exactly. Like yeah. we're doing it live. Even though we weren't live that we could cut, they tried to avoid that for cost, And I come in my very first day, and I don't remember my lines. I can't remember any of my lines. I'm I'm terrified. I'm mortified. And there was a guy named Don Stewart, and I I believe I've been told that if you listen to the broadcast of the first time I was on the show, because we had cue cards back then, actual cue cards, next to the camera with this guy, Don Stewart, you can hear in the background Don Stewart tapping my cue card where the line is, I'm supposed to say. (laughs) So David O'Brien plays my phone, he's like, so Bill... We haven't seen you in such a long time. Where have you been? And I go, oh, you know... Uh. <laughs> and I go, we'll go to the card. And, and David would save me. He'd save my line. I bet you were spending a lot of time at your grandmother's house in Newport, weren't you, Bill? <laughs> Newport is... You've been in Newport for a while, I see. And I was like, yes, 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 yes. I was in Newport. I was, I was... Uh, I was uh, working at the bank uh, for grandma grandma's bank I was working at grandma's bank you know and then I, I, I realized how caring and how kind he was and I became really good friends with him and he was from an old you know he, David was in the original company of boys in the band he was from a pre-aids pre-80s gay culture in New York uh, his 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 friends were all uh, as I say in the book they were executive gay Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, they were uh, uh, CEO gay And uh, we go to these restaurants uh, uh, I go as I was David's date And uh, um, he taught me many things But uh, he taught me that uh, I think what, I don't think he meant to teach me But what I say in the book is, uh, is that Under any given circumstances I could have been gay I say that in the book I was as in love with him as anybody I've ever met in my life. I never slept with him. I never slept with a guy in my life. But I look at him and I go, was it my hang up? Like did I, what's the, what's the membrane you pass through by which one minute you have a certain set of values in terms of sexuality, and you meet somebody that you care about as much as any woman I've ever been with. I thought to myself, well, what do I do? Now, you know, I, I say in the book, I took a woman I was dating to his house on, on Fire, Fire Island. Island. <laughs> and She was just Velcroed to the corner and didn't say a word. <laughs> And he and I were like, oh, <laughs> you, you, you. And she's sitting there, like, eating, you know, macadamia nuts and, like, <laughs> doing her nails. And I'm like, you know, you okay over there? You okay? And uh, I mean, I loved him. I loved him. He was a great guy. And, uh, uh, but he taught me to, he taught me, he was the beginning of me learning the one for them, one for you school of acting, which is embrace the commercial and engr- embrace. Those opportunities, but uh, then when you can, you run off and do these other things for your soul. You know.
0: So, you began acting one year at NYU, one and a half years, as you say. You, you join the doctors, you go to Hollywood, quickly find success. And during this time of becoming an actor with a job on Knott's Landing, you also have a cocaine habit that you write with some detail. Did about. I? Yes.
1: <laughs> it slipped my mind. <laughs>
0: When did you first do cocaine? Oh my
1: God. <laughs> Is your show called Drugs, Death, <laughs> Sex, and Money? The, um, I guess here in New York, with uh, people from the soap, there was people who were, uh, you know, one day you're down in the bathroom in a bar in New York, it's the 80s, and you're doing cocaine, and you're, and you're like, oh, that's cool. And then, and then, of course, the money thing. You know, like, you, I look at everything in terms of a value of, you know, what I could afford, and I didn't want to... Um, waste of money. I would thought, God, I, money is so uh, elusive in my family, in my bloodline uh, that I, uh, uh, w- I would sit there and somebody would I'd say, well, you know, I mean, literally you know, I'm like a Woody Allen character in my own life, you know. I'm like in the bathroom, I'm like, hey, so how much does this stuff cost? Uh, you know, if you're doing the cocaine, how much, you like the portions you buy, what size, like a little baggie and how much is that? <laughs> And the woman's like saying to me, uh, you know, they tell you how much it costs and you're like, oh God, no, I'm not doing that. You know, that's a, it was cost prohibitive. And then when you make more money.
0: It's not cost prohibitive. It's not
1: prohibitive. Thank you.
0: You write about an overdose, a cocaine overdose. Yeah. While you were working, you're alone in a hotel room. Mm-hmm. You think you're going to die. Did you stop using cocaine because you were ashamed or because you thought you might die?
1: Well, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, um, I stopped then in the fall of two thousand uh, nineteen. Uh, 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 two thousand. Yeah. Oops. Uh, <laughs> typo. Um, the uh, in nineteen eighty four, mm-hmm. I stop, and then uh, and then I go and uh, do it again. And people had said. You know that uh, in these different 12-step programs, that if you give up one thing, then you'll pick up other things. And sure enough, uh, my drinking increased. And I uh, would uh, uh, know, not that it was that that was too crazy, but I'll never forget one time I was at my friend's house, who were my dear friends, and they were all snorting cocaine, and they knew what happened to me, how sick I was, and they were all talking, and it was like one of those Ef Hutton commercials, where, like all of a sudden everybody stops talking when the cocaine mirror is in front of me. They want to see if this person that 's overdosed is actually going to so everybody's going blah 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 so i didn 't uh go back and do that until one more time in the february of eighty five and um it just made me sick it made me I was very sick because i uh uh I think uh as is often the case for many people, success was far more scary for me than failure. Failure was what I was accustomed to, Mm. or not succeeding was what I mean. Growing up under very, very uh, uh, ordinary means and so forth, and going to L.A. and uh, and trying to figure that out. My dad had died. There was no O'Brien there for me. I write in the book that one of the strongest themes of the book is my need to find someone to replace my dad and to mentor me. And... um, I did this thing, I mean, as loquacious as I can be at times, I played this game once with two famous men that were two huge executives at a studio. And I'm not that smart, but on one occasion I thought, I'm going to sit and have lunch with them, and I'm not going to say a word. I'm going to read all about them. This is before the internet. I'm going to find out about their careers. And I sat and had lunch with one particular guy, and we talked for an hour and a half at a restaurant in Beverly Hills. And he spoke in an unbroken monologue for an hour and a half. <laughs> he just couldn't believe how much I was act- really acted. It's the best acting I've ever done in my life. I'm going, then what? And then you did what after that? Ooh, really? My God. Then you did that? Oh, my God. And I kind of meant it because he was a very fascinating guy. And the lunch is over and he calls up my agent. He goes, I love him. <laughs> He's fantastic. You know, And I realized getting out there, like it's, uh, it's like this much about how talented you are and this much about how much they like you. They, to, they want to like you yeah. and they want to work with people they like. So I started to kind of get into that idea and then eventually I just chucked that. I was like, I don't care if they like me.
0: Coming up, Alec tells me about choosing to be a very public celebrity while also being addicted to solitude.
1: You know, Ray Charles is blind, but he learned how to play the piano. Sometimes people are the Ray Charles of, uh, you know, uh, agoraphobia, you know, or being in public. They, they find a way to handle it and deal with it, but doesn't take away the fact that they uh, aren't necessarily that comfortable in front of people and talking about themselves and so forth. But they find a way to get around it.
0: Spring is in the air, which means it's that time of year when we get a lot of emails from college students who are thinking about what comes next and totally freaking out. We asked our weekly newsletter readers what advice they have for recent college grads. Sarah from North Pole, Alaska graduated from college three years ago. I often felt kind of betrayed when I graduated, when I just graduated college, because I was like, no one told me how hard it was to adjust to life outside of college. Um, And I called it the awkward freshman year of adulthood, because it replicates that same sense of not knowing what's going on, feeling totally clueless, um, and just, it's kind of embarrassing and awkward. Sarah also said that a really good quote to remember is, comparison is the thief of joy. She says it's easy to compare salaries or jobs or success with others, but don't fall into the trap. Matt from in New York, agrees. You're probably going to end up living with your parents again. Uh, it doesn't mean you're a failure. Uh, just don't judge yourself too harshly. Matt graduated with $28,000 in student loans. And he says after a series of demoralizing jobs, he was able to move out of his parents' house and into a place of his own. Matt wasn't the only one who wrote to us about student debt. So we're going to do an episode all about it. We want to hear from you about how your student loan bills have impacted or continue to impact your lives. How much did you owe and how did it affect the choices you made? Or if you're in college now, how do you think about the loans you'll have when you finish? Write us an email or record a voice memo and send it to us at wnyc.org. Speaking of college students, last week we gave you an update about Rashima Melson, whom we first met as a Georgetown college student. She told me about leaving school, getting married and moving away, and then deciding to come back to D.C. After that update went out, Rashima texted me to let me know that Georgetown has said she can return and she'll be going there in the fall. And we have one more update to tell you about. I recently talked with Emma, the sex worker who was on the show back in 2015. She wanted to go back to school but didn't know how to support her family if she stopped doing sex work. She's since quit doing sensual massage. And she tells me about how she's making those finances work in an update we're putting out in our weekly newsletter. You can subscribe by going to deathsexmoney.org slash newsletter. here to tell you about a great mystery. That mystery is you. As the host of a podcast called Hidden Brain, I explore big questions about what it means to be human. Questions like, where do our emotions come from? Why do so many of us feel overwhelmed by modern life? How can we better understand the people around us? Discover your hidden brain. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash Death, Sex, Money. We are so excited to see you there. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. As a college student, Alec Baldwin took a leap— and transferred from George Washington University, where he was studying politics, to go to NYU's Tisch School of the Arts. After a year there, Alec got work as an actor and dropped out. But more than a decade later, when he was in his late 30s, he finished his degree.
1: I read all of the books of Stanislavski and Strasbourg, and I watched all of the films of Al Pacino, and I interviewed Al for nine hours. Really? Off and on. Uh... uh, uh. I mean, Al would be like literally out. We'd be, doing, we'd be talking and we'd be getting into this great thing. And he was doing me this big favor by letting me interview him. And uh, like about an hour and a half would go by. He goes, I'm going to go to the grocery store, Alec. I'm going to run down to the grocery store right now. You wait here. I'll be right back.
0: And he'd be gone for like an hour. You know I mean?
1: And I'm sitting there. Writing. And I had 225 questions. And I interviewed Al about the applicability of method acting to someone with a career in theater and film. Hmm. And Pacino was the only one that really mattered because he kept going back to the theater throughout his career and still does. He just finished doing a show in L.A. And I interviewed Al, and it was just one of the most amazing experiences of my life.
0: Do you remember one thing you learned from those interviews that sticks with you?
1: Al does not like to talk about acting, which was very (laughs) frustrating. (laughs) We were writing a paper about acting. And uh, we're in his house one time. I mean, there's so many anecdotes about that. But one time I I say to him, I said to him, I look at the line of people's work. Like, what's the kind of uh, uh, course they're on? And I said, now, in this period, right this year, you did the movie Author, Author with Tuesday Weld, this romantic comedy. And in the title song of the movie, the lyrics they sing are, and in the end, it's just, it's just all cookies and milk and a smile. I said, and then after that, you do Cruisin', the homosexual uh, crime movie, a detective movie, uh, with Billy Friedkin, which was this big disaster for everybody involved. And uh, I said, you know, you have your, 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 this really violent movie. I said, what's that like for you as an actor when you pivot between these different things? And he literally sits there and goes, that does sound good, though, doesn't it, Alec? It's all just cookies and milk and a smile. <laughs> that doesn't sound too bad, does it? And I'm like, yeah, it, it sounds great. But then you go from that, you see, to people like murdering each other in these gay clubs in Manhattan. I said, to him, You do a scene with Richard Cox and he is going down on you in in uh, Riverside Park. And I said, and You're a method actor. I said, What's that like for you shooting that scene? He goes, all I remember was it was cold. It was so cold. <laughs> We're there in the park and it was so damn cold out there. And he would never answer my question. <laughs> acting, like, to reveal to me, wouldn't answer one question. And, but then you talked about the theater and he talked about the theater. He would uh, uh, articulate
0: about that quite a bit. Oh, that's interesting. So I want to ask you about acting. I want to... It was so damn cold out there, Adam. <laughs> That's all I remember. I I'm curious because you have been both a professional actor and a professional celebrity for most of your adult life, so you have been acting in roles and being the persona of Alec Baldwin. When you are preparing, like t- I was thinking this weekend. So, awful. so last night you're preparing to go on Saturday Night Live as Bill O'Reilly and as President Donald Trump, and then tonight you're preparing to open up your personal life to all of these people who are here tonight?
1: Oh, no, don't get your hopes up.
0: <laughs> like, do, is there a similar way that you prepare or are they totally different?
1: I, I think it's... It uh, um, would be good to answer the questions without the bike.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but, um, the... Uh,
1: the um, I think uh, uh, well, I mean, you know, you go along and you and you have a career, and of course, you want a career like many people I admire, where the only way you can access them is to buy a ticket. And uh, there are certain things in the business they don't want to do. You know, Daniel Day Lewis is very elusive, and uh, he's not doing Jimmy Fallon. You know, I mean, I mean, you can almost wonder what that conversation is like, where people are like, you know, so we got this idea where Daniel's going to come on the show, right? <laughs> and he and Jimmy are going to have, like, a pie-eating contest, okay? <laughs> and, like, spitting the pie out. All, there's, there's pie everywhere. And there's, like, pie and snot and pie. And you can see Daniel Day-Lewis on the other end with his puppets going, I don't think so, Jay. Jay. <laughs> And there's, like, things those people won't do, and then that becomes the difference, which is you become someone who will do those things. Where the promotional aspect of the film... But the promotional aspect of the film becomes you performing in that capacity. Yeah. Rather than, uh, you know, there's a lot of people, Nicholson won't do press, Pacino and De Niro uh, avoided that a lot. Uh, uh, Brando, you look at old shows from him on uh, 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 Cavett, and he wasn't going to work very hard at all. You, know, you can see Cavett, like, writhing in his seat, trying to understand if, if uh, he's making any progress with uh, opening up Brando. And then in the modern world, you have this requirement to promote the project, and they'll come to you with a very long list of things for you to do. They'll say, we'd well, we like you to pick some quotient of this list, of like, and then it's like a joke, like a Cohn Brothers movie. The piece of paper like rolls all the way down the hallway, you know? <laughs> and uh, it's crazy, and, uh, the, um, and so you do some because you want to be viewed as the good partner in the business. You are working with them on a venture. Where it's in all of our interest for the thing to do well, and we're in a very crowded marketplace. So you agree to spit the pie out with Jimmy on the show. And I love Jimmy, and I love doing those things, but that's what happened to me, was I kind of went that way, where you're doing Letterman, and you're doing this. And, and to some degree, it's possible uh, that uh, from time to time, that stuff can eclipse the actual work you're doing. It's, it's 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 more... Uh, they get more hits and clicks on the internet. I mean, more people will watch Saturday Night Live than pretty much any movie I've ever made in my life. You know what I mean? So, it's weird.
0: Does it take a similar amount of energy to perform Alec Baldwin as it does to perform a role for you? Uh, I guess...
1: I, I don't know the answer to that question. Like, I mean, uh, when you say perform me, I... Uh, It's it's strange because like you know you you people always have an expectation that you're going to contribute something in some way, you know. I mean, I love going to the movies. I love going to the theater. It's about somebody else, and I don't have to do any of the talking, you know. But uh, the other thing that changes is that your passion for some of the work you do begins to change, and you still love it, but you love it a little less, or you you love it less often. Like movie making, you know. Movie making is this incredibly uh, time consuming. Uh, you know, paint. We did 30 Rock for six and a half years, and there's a velocity to television. You know, Tina and I would say you develop a muscle, which you begin to kind of appreciate how we have to make choices quickly and efficiently. And I always tell the same crazy story about, like in the movies, you'll do a movie sometimes, and you can't believe the the level of uh, indulgence. You know, I always say I did this movie one time, and, the, and there's a shot is of a of a, is of a a doorknob. And the, and the director says, all right, Alec, in this scene, you, your hand comes into the shot and you reach for the doorknob and you open the door. And inside the bathroom, Nicole is, Nicole Kidman, Nicole is in the shower, out of focus in the distance, and action. Hand comes in, open the door, open it, and cut. All right, and this time, open the door a little less, maybe three inches. <laughs> Split the difference, three inches, four inches, maybe somewhere in there, some range in there. Show it to us, please. And you're right about there. Open the right about there. That's great. Take four, take five, take six. Finally, okay, have your hand come in. Have your hand come out. You're rethinking the whole thing. <laughs> then have your hand come in. i have like to see the tension in your hand. Your hand is trembling just a bit. There's a tension. Open the door. No, you change your mind. <laughs> and, and we're doing this. Like, this is like the half a day before lunch. And the movies can be, like, this is very rare now because movies are uh, independent film and have very restrictive budgets. But I remember I did movies where, you know, we we didn't get a lot done every day. And we shot the movie for, like, four months, five months. And uh, uh, that's not all that exciting because most of the day is spent, uh, like, just in an idle gear in your trailer, waiting for them to come and go, we're ready for you. You know, and it's just, uh, uh, I I didn't, after a while, I thought, what the fuck am I doing with this, (laughs) you know?
0: So by 2010, you have come back to New York, you are working on 30 Rock, you have gone through a very public divorce and custody battle, and Vanity Fair describes you as the bruised mascot of the male midlife crisis. (laughs) Which was well put, I thought. (laughs) They're very good
1: at that. To <laughs> be they're very good. Is they're to something.
0: At that point in their, your life, is that how it felt? I think
1: I felt like I was just not. Uh, um, uh, I, I was not finding things I wanted to do work-wise. That was 2000. I got uh, separated and divorced in the early 2000s, and when you know, and I go along, and uh, you make independent films, and uh, um, in the book, I take some of those independent films, and I write a little uh, uh, section about. When you go into these films, why do you do them? There's a reason you do them. You, they might not have the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the the markings to be some great film, but you want to go to work and this is what you do. And, you, and I did have you know, some options, not many then. So I pick a movie and I say, there's a real opportunity here. You meet with a director, a writer-director in the modern world. And you uh, think that he's a smart guy, uh, and you go do... I list, like, 12 films that I did that, you know, when you saw the film, you wondered, what was I thinking when I did that film? But I... But you uh, talk, kept
0: working. You were well, working I, t- I about how,
1: like, when we go into... Nobody sets out to make a mediocre film. You, I don't really mean that in a heartfelt way. You start... You, you go and you say, well, let's give this everything we have, and, uh, uh, and, and and sometimes you're into it, like, the second week of shooting, and you're like... Oh, God, what have I got myself into? You know, it's, it's not going, you know, they're not, you don't feel that creative. When I did the movie The Cooler with Wayne Kramer, Wayne was this, this really, really intoxicating guy. He was just so smart and so passionate and so clear. And uh, he was the captain of the ship, which you want with every director. And, uh, and not all movies were like that, you know. And uh, um, the, I come to where I'm going to do TV because I thought to myself, you know, the opportunities in film are, you know, if I do one more movie, or, or I, take that, I, I take that back, if I read one more script in which, you know, uh, um, Laura Dern's my sister, and we're going to put dad in a home. <laughs> you, know. <laughs> you know, it's an independent comedy, and Laura and I, and I are like, you know, the first scene is, you know, we pull up, at the, she picks me up at the airport in Buffalo. And we haven't seen each other in like nine years. And I'm like, you look good. <laughs> How you been? You know, next thing you know, we're putting, you know, dad is like Philip Bosco. We're putting him at home somewhere. You know, Len Carrey, is dad, we're putting him at home somewhere. And I just kept reading the scripts going, what the fuck am I going to do? And, um, so I started to develop TV and then Lorne flew in as the superhero he is and, uh, asked me to do 30 Rock, and, I did, and then I did the TV show with Tina.
0: Which you started in 2006, and I, I, you've written a whole book about fatherhood and divorce and that time in your life and the custody battle, but I want to just ask you, at this point in your life, if a buddy comes to you and says, I love my kids, I think my marriage is breaking up, what's the advice that you give him?
1: Well, I try to tell people that if they can... I say, find a way that you can get into therapy and get into the collaborative divorce, you know, the the dignified divorce, because uh, uh, you're gonna so regret if you don't. And uh, the, um, I mean, I'm with friends of mine who, I'll say to them, you know, are you out of this? I mean, this is if they're good friends of mine. I don't say that (laughs) to strangers. (laughs) I'm out in the airport bar going, "Are, are you ready for this to be over now? While Gwen's in the ladies' room. Her name is Gwen, am I right? I don't know the truth. of you. I overheard you yell, Gwen! And, uh, I... And, and, no, but I think, you know, like, I tell, try to tell my close friends or people who, who want to have that conversation. I'm married again. My wife is here. She's somewhere out there in this, uh... She's somewhere out there in Brooklyn. And, uh, um... And everybody uh, has their difference of opinion, and everybody has their arguments, and everybody has this. But to me, marriage, when you're with the right person, uh, and even that's no guarantee, it's a decision. You decide to stay, and uh, you decide to uh, try to make it work. Uh, and, and you want to kind of feel out of the other person, this is a can of worms, by the way, but you want to find out if the other person has the same kind of attitude of disposability that you have. Like, I have a friend of mine who was married to his... Well, they were together nine years. They were married, like, five years. And she literally woke up one day and said, I've made a mistake, and I'm leaving. And like, boom! We just shot him, like, in one day. And he's overwhelmed with uh, a confusion. And uh, obviously, um, they didn't have the same attitude about marriage that uh, he thought they did.
0: Has your attitude... What, how did you say it? The, the, the attitude about disposability? Has that changed for you? over your adult life and your romantic life when you look back?
1: Well, um, I got married. I met my wife five, oh, six years ago. We got married and very quickly we had three children in three years. And, Did you uh, all hear that? <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, 30 Rock was over. I had a lot of time on my hands. and uh, <laughs> I was home a lot. And, uh, the, uh, uh, and, you know, my wife, I'm very, it's a lot of luck. And I try to remember in, 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 our, in our lives, like, what's my role? Which I don't always fulfill my end of the bargain as well as I might, but my role is to support her. You know, and, I, and I kind of accept that, I mean, to, in order to make things easy. I mean, I love my children, I worship my children. But as my dad taught me, uh, parenthood is a contest between two people where the dad always wins the bronze medal. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, My wife is, uh, you know, the moment my wife walks in the door, my kids are like, yeah, that's great. See you later. Boom, boom. Like, <laughs> but my job is to be there to try to help we parent our children together, but she is the mom. And I'm lucky. That was my point. I'm, I'm, I, got, I got very lucky.
0: And luck plays a big part in it. Well, it's, to read back interviews before you met your wife, you were very open that a dream that you had was to, to just try to have a family again, that you prayed for. Boy, with. did that dream come true. <laughs> How did your, I mean, you are living a full unmarried life in New York City, star on 30 I was back. unhappy.
1: I was unhappy. Yeah, I
0: didn't like that. Is that that's how, how you long remember have you that been time. Married? Watch this.
1: I know. <laughs> you were waiting for the moment where I was going <laughs> to. I take Anna Sale. Whoa. <laughs> My guest is Anna Sale, the host of Death, Sex, and Money. How long have you been married?
0: I've been married a, a year and a half.
1: And you met your husband. You knew each other how long?
0: We got together in 2011, so we were together four years before we got married. So
1: you've you met him in recent years?
0: Oh, yeah. As, yeah, I was, it was my second marriage. Wow. Yeah. Huh? Huh? <laughs> I learned some things in the yes. ensuing years, so that's why I wanted to know from you about... What? <laughs> about, like... So you think back on that time when you were... Having success on television, you've turned around your career after feeling like things hadn't quite worked out with with movies, and then you're a star on 30 Rock, this critically acclaimed show. You're winning Emmys. You're winning Golden Globes, and you felt lonely. That's how you remember I that. I went movie. home and
1: ate a pint of ice cream every night and watched Turner Classic movies. It was all by myself. I, was, I didn't meet... I mean, I met people I dated, and I met people I dated. I had a run of time with this one or that one, and... and uh, um, uh, none of it I was willing to commit, by the way, because I didn't want to, my older daughter to think I was abandoning her. Many people said to me, "But they said, you know, be careful that your daughter will view you moving on as an abandonment of your daughter. So I kept pushing away any formalized commitment with people. And then finally, when my daughter turned, it all kind of came together. My daughter was 18. Uh, uh, actually, she was uh, uh, 15, uh, 16. She was 16 when I met my, my wife, Ilaria, and, and all of it just developed at the same time. Where like, I met somebody who I thought, oh, my God, I think it would be a horrible act of self-robbery if I didn't try to pursue this on some level. So, uh, you know, we got married, but, but before I met my wife, you know, I, was, I was cutting every ribbon. I was going, like, do you want to do the auction for the Sheepshead Bay Book of the Month Club? They need an auctioneer. I was like, do I have $5? Do I have $5 <laughs> for this framed picture of Jerry Lewis? $5. And I'm, like, going to every auction. I'm going to every event and hosting. And I'm, I'm out every night because I don't have anybody at home waiting for me. And I just kept um, keeping busy and working. And, uh, uh, and then I met my wife.
0: And now you have the opposite. Were you doing
1: a lot of auctioning before you met your husband? Yeah.
0: <laughs> I was out more, yeah. Oh, right, and, right. and now I have a small child, and I'm home a lot. I'm home a lot now. So I'm, how now you come home, you have three little kids. What's that like? How, what was that transition like?
1: Uh, well, it's, it's, it's wild. You know, we had the first kid. We had our daughter, Carmen. That was great. We had our son. That was great. Uh, and, and, then we, and then you have a third kid and it's, uh, it's, you know, everything becomes Cirque du Soleil, you know, it's your whole house is like <laughs> you know, we had a nice apartment and I had a dear friend of mine come over, I hadn't seen her in years and she was up from Washington and she comes in and I said, and you literally can't imagine you're like uh, 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 you're, you're there turning to someone and you, you can't believe you have a life where you say this line, you're like, I'm sorry I don't have a really, really comfortable place for you to sit down <laughs> you know, because the kids toys are everywhere and everything <laughs> And my friend looked at me, she goes, I get it, it's a preschool Your apartment is a preschool But we have three kids, and uh, the the great journey is watching them Our daughter Carmen is, she's a talk show host I mean, she is really so verbal And, uh, you know, you sit there, you're there in that moment Where you come around the corner in the kitchen And she's staring up at the refrigerator Like it's the monolith in 2001, a space odyssey And she sees you look at her and she looks at me and she goes, she goes, I'm not going to eat the chocolate. I'm just protecting the chocolate. (laughs) She's three and a half. You just kind of stand there and go, who are you? Where did you come from?
0: That's Alec Baldwin. His new book is called Nevertheless and his movie Boss Baby is in theaters now. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm based at the Center for Investigative Reporting in Emeryville, California. The team includes Katie Bishop, Emily Boteen, and Andrew Dunn. Our intern is Adriana Rush. Special thanks to engineer Ed Haber and the entire crew at BAM for all of their help with this live show. The Reverend John DeLore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death, Sex, Money. And if you want more Death, Sex, and Money, you can find us on Spotify or subscribe to the show on iTunes. While you're there, please leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. Alec Baldwin's father and grandfather were also named Alexander, and they both went by Alec. So growing up, the youngest Alexander Baldwin was called Xander. Alec told me there are still a few people who call him that especially in his hometown of Massapequa, Long Island.
1: There's is one guy I grew up with. His name was Greg Maughan. And his mother was this character out of, like, a Sydney Kingsley novel. You know, she was this, this really like New York-y kind of woman with a cigarette in her mouth. And they had a clothesline in the backyard. She'd hang the laundry in the yard, you know, and this is suburban Long Island. I think I went out there about six or seven years ago. So we, uh, we're driving by and I pull up to the Maughan's house And there's Mrs. Maughan with a cigarette in her mouth Hanging out the laundry <laughs> It's like nothing's changed Me and her sons, we're all like in our 50s And she has like a basket of laundry And I pull up and I go, Mrs. Maughan? And from like 60 yards away, you know, 60
0: feet away She goes,
1: Xander Baldwin <laughs> <laughs> What are you doing here?